0: The Scottish Mortgage Podcast, Invest in Progress, is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.
1: Hello, I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio by Chris Elliott, a global fund manager at Evenload. The Cotswolds-based boutique has carved out a strong reputation in the last decade and a half, although its early success came during a period of rock-bottom rates and benign inflation that looks quite different from today. Chris was the founding duo's first external investment hire, and today is a manager on both of Evenload's global funds. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for coming in and, um, you know, making the trip down. Um, I wanted to start by asking, so before you joined Evenload, you, you were a software engineer for quite a few years. You know, h- yeah. how did you go from that to joining a fund management firm, which is in the middle of nowhere, effectively?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not perhaps the most traditional entry into the market. Uh, mm. So I left university in 2009, right mm. in the middle of the global financial crisis. Right. Um, and at that point, I did sort of look around and say, do I want to keep going in, in finance? Having studied mm. economics at university, um, and decided I wanted to really build out my skill set, so I went into programming for a number of years, and I uh, found that really entertaining and very useful. Um, mm. However, uh, my heart really was set on coming back into finance. So I did. Oh, the, so
1: that's something you've been interested in since you were younger. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, I'd say so. Um, so I did the CFA exams in my spare time mm. uh, whilst I was a software engineer. Uh, it's a, a, an interesting hobby, some would say, but uh, having done that, I then decided I wanted to go back into the finance industry and was looking for somewhere that I could use both the finance skills that I was starting to develop, but also the software uh, programming that, that I had done so far. So uh, joining a small com- a boutique at that yeah. point in time, uh, I really felt I could make a difference and contribute to developing our internal systems.
1: Okay. Um, in my experience, uh, people with uh, software and programming skills uh, are often expected to de- deploy some kind of tech wizardry. Was there that kind of expectation when you joined the firm that you'd be you know, creating algorithms or, or digging into data in new ways, anything like that?
2: Yeah, so we're not a, not a quant shop, so right. uh, there wasn't anything quite that extreme. Um, what I really did was took some of the systems and the, the spreadsheets that we had internally and, and formalized them a bit more into some Basic systems. So, put a database on the back end and, and uh, made sure that we
1: had something that was a bit more fit for purpose. Yeah. And programming software, is that something you still have an interest in? Or yeah,
2: do I know? do a little bit in my spare time. Um, we have
1: developed. So, you own... were doing the CFN in your spare time and now back to programming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we, we do
1: have our own internal developed
2: system, uh, which we call EDI, which manages all of our investment research and has a number of tools that helps us. Run the portfolios. Mm. Fortunately, it's not me that's doing the software development on those. We have now an internal development team yeah. uh, of, of four or five people, uh, and that they are able to to really make a, a, an all single or dancing uh, back end.
1: Okay, um, and can you clear up one thing for me? So, even it is is based in, um, well, in rural Oxfordshire, uh, the Cotswolds, pretty much, I always thought it was named after a place. Is it named after a place or uh, is it named after a pub? I saw
2: <laughs> Not quite, no. So it's actually named after the Evenlode River. Ah. Uh, so the Evenlode River runs through Chalbury where one of our founders lives. Oh, okay. Uh, which is famous for its otter. So you will see- That's why sure. the,
1: the marketing images, Yeah,
2: absolutely. So. If you go onto our website, you can see lots of pictures of otters. I don't think any of us have ever seen uh, an <laughs> otter seen in an the otter. River Evenlode, but we are <laughs> sure they're there. So.
1: Okay, thanks. Um, So so you work on the £1.9 billion uh, Load Global Income Fund uh, and the £340 million load Global Equity Fund. Uh, Now, the second is a bit newer, uh, maybe a bit less known by people. So I think we'll we'll speak to that a bit more today. Um, But I think it's fair to say there are some principles that run across load, aren't there, in terms of investment? I mean, so, you know, what are they? What's the kind of elevator pitch for the firm's approach?
2: Sure. So uh, yes, we have a shared investment philosophy Mm -hmm. and a shared investment process across all of our funds. We run money one way, Mm -hmm. um, and that's investing in high quality businesses that can compound cash flows over a long period of time. Um, And we want to invest in them at sensible valuations. Now, uh, it's really important for us to define what does quality mean? Because in the industry, there are many different people who would say they're quality investors. Mm -hmm. We're really looking for businesses that have firstly a high ROIC today, so high return on invested capital. But more importantly, businesses where that return on invested capital could be maintained a long time into the future. And there are really three sort of secret ingredients or key ingredients that we look for in those businesses. So firstly, there must be uh, attractive market growth underlying that. So if you think about a a company like uh, Mm L'Oreal, is there growth in cosmetics? Is there growth in the skincare products and the luxury products that they they buy, that they provide. Yes, absolutely. And that provides a really good tailwind to your investment. There must be a reason why the company we invest in is more likely to realize a greater share of that market growth. So what's your competitive advantage? And that tends to be either consumer brands, as in Mm -hmm. L'Oreal's case, uh, network effects, as you think of the sort of card networks, like Visa or MasterCard, or it's switching costs, as you see with a lot of the software and data businesses that are in the portfolio, like a Relix or a Baltus Glue. Yeah okay and that that really is something that's the same across all funds and has been since the initiation mm-hmm. back in 2009 the key difference obviously is the global equity fund is focused on uh, basically capital uh, appreciation yeah so we don't need to have the yield today and uh, now that means we're not averse to dividends we're more sort of dividend agnostic um, and where the Traditional income funds have looked for dividend and dividend growth. We're really looking for cash flow and cash flow growth over time.
1: Okay. Um, And so, you know, with, with that kind of quality focused approach, I mean, what's even load's edge, would you say, in analyzing companies and looking for that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. So what we spend an awful lot of our time thinking about is the risks that businesses face. So when we talk about the durability of returns on invested capital, the question is, okay, well, what is going to come along and prevent this return on invested capital from lasting long into the future. And that could be many, many different things. It could be, have we got a disruptive uh, new entrance into the market? What are the barriers to entry? It might be, have we seen an ESG risk such as uh, a legal liability, which is coming and could materially destabilize how much capital is available to invest. Mm-hmm. It could even be something uh, fairly simple, like what's the balance sheet? But there's also elements like culture, which you have to think about very carefully. Why is it that this business is going to remain committed to making the investments that it needs to drive future revenues, mm. even in the tough times? So that risk management and the way we approach that risk management across the team is a really core part of our philosophy and our, our approach. And I think is quite differentiated from peers. The other thing, okay. and it really does, again, feed into that risk management idea is mm. the way we approach valuation. Now, mm. spot metrics are useful as a sense check, but we really want to think about valuation in terms of what are the long-term cash flows that this business can generate. Yes, And we want to integrate our qualitative views and research that we do on every single company. Mm. So we have a reversed ECF valuation model, which allows us to do that and means that we are prepared to invest in a company that will take a hit in terms of profitability today if we can clearly see how that will lead to future revenues.
1: Okay. Um, all right. I mean, have there been any, been any examples of that recently? I mean, this is, we've sort of had the recession that never arrived, so maybe it's too <laughs> early to ask that. But yeah, well, anything yeah, spring to mind?
2: It's quite, quite common. So a really good example is Airbnb within our portfolio. So Airbnb could absolutely ramp up their profitability by saying, we're not going to give uh, guests that have had a bad stay a refund. Yeah. We're going to comp- we're going to contest a lot of these these uh, cases. Now, instead, what they do is say, okay, well, it's far more important to manage our brand because that's effectively what our key differentiator is. So they're prepared to sp- lose a bit of profitability today to give back that- those mm-hmm. refunds on the basis that it means they're likely to get people coming back. And if you look at the number of people that go direct to the Airbnb platform and app mm-hmm. rather than having to go through Google, for instance that dramatically cuts the amount of future
1: advertising that a company like Airbnb does right
2: so in so those you, cases you have a
1: way to incorporate that kind of thing into your cash flow model
2: absolutely yeah so we look at what is the how does that affect the durability of the returns over time and how long would we give it credit for those high returns for?
1: Yeah. You, you talked about kind of the importance of, of companies which operate in growing markets and then can take a bigger share of those markets. I mean, how, how do you deal with them with markets that are being disrupted? I'll kind of jump forward a bit because I, I wanted to ask you about about Klarna, uh, which is a by now, pay later company. To be honest, I sort of forget how it works, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of a competitor, isn't it, in some ways to Mastercard, which, which is the biggest holding in the global equity fund. So, you know, it, it's disrupting how that market works a bit. How do you deal with something like that? Sure. I
2: mean, I I put it very much in the frenemy category. Okay. Uh, Although MasterCard does have a sort of uh, buy now, pay later service itself. Um, Actually, its peer Visa has actually got an equity stake in Klarna. Right. So it's interesting. A lot of the innovations that you see in fintech, and this applies to to buy now, pay later, but also uh, many other fintech innovations, Mm. they really leverage the credit card networks because the credit card networks have a lot of features which they can benefit from, such as fraud prevention services, such as uh, using MasterCard and Visa to load money into and out of digital wallets or or the the um, Klarna to make your payments actually on Klarna. And if you look at Klarna, and this stat may be a couple of years old, 75% of the payments that people make into their Klarna account come from debit cards or credit cards. Right. So in the end, the transaction still goes through MasterCard and Visa. And if Klarna says, okay, rather than paying this up once, you're going to pay it in seven or eight different uh, installments. More transactions. That's more transactions, which is good for MasterCard
1: or Visa. So it's, okay. not, so it's, it's not like a, a new ecosystem, so to speak.
2: It's a different way of doing business, but the value of the networks, MasterCard and Visa, remains intact. And if you look at the value-added services, for instance, MasterCard... Are, are pushing out and this goes into open banking as well uh, it's also the sort of broad prevention services that they offer into many fintech uh, businesses those are at higher margin than the transactions for, for MasterCard mm-hmm. so while there may be this transition happening over time as long as the number of transaction continues to go up and Visa's recent results demonstrated that transactions are continuing to grow yeah it doesn't matter too much to the credit card networks, whether it's actually on network or using their services off network.
1: Okay. In- interesting. I mean, you know, Klarna is not listed. There are listed peers, but but it, the CEO said the other day, I think it could IPO soon. I mean, is that a business you'd look at with interest? Or?
2: Um, well, I'd have to have a look at it, uh, having not <laughs> looked at the numbers. The most important thing is, is it uh, asset light? Mm. So has it got a very high return on invested capital today? Because mm. we don't rely on a business saying, we're going to project forward the economics into the future and say it will hit our t- our requirements in three or four years, but also what's the asset intensity for that business as well.
1: Okay, fair enough. Thanks. But before we move on to some more general questions, uh, I mean, we were, we were chatting um, when you came in, you know, you've been at even nearly nine years now, so, yeah. you know, you, your entire investment career. Um, I mean, do you ever wonder you could see what it's like in another asset manager <laughs> for a day, be a fly on the wall somewhere else and when they do things very differently?
2: It would take an awful lot to get me to leave. I'm we are very much set up for the long term. So we want to be partners for our investors for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's very much how I see my position at, at Evenload. And I think how, how the whole team does. It very much helps. We're an employee-owned business. Mm-hmm. So everybody who is at the fund and at the firm uh, benefits from the economics of the overall company. Uh, and it means we de-emphasize the idea of a sale. Right. So Evenload, as it is, and as an independent entity, we'll be there long into the future.
1: Okay, thanks. Well, well let, let's come on to the um, Global, De- Global Equity Fund a bit more. I mean, so, you know, you, why did you want to launch it in July 2020? Yeah. Why, why did you want to launch it? And um, have you been happy so far?
2: Well, it's, it's an interesting time to launch it. So we uh, we did can see uh, an article that came out in the financial press uh, maybe the, towards the end of last year that said July 2020 was the worst month within 10 years to launch a fund. Okay. So uh, we maybe didn't get the time right. Uh, it was quite tough I and mean, quality had massively outperformed going into July 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did have a bit of a headwind initially. Uh, now we've completely reclaimed that. We're ahead of the benchmark. We're in the uh, first quartile yeah. against peers. Uh, in our IA sector. So we've been very pleased with performance in terms of the overall returns for investors. More importantly for us, we've been able to outperform in a range of different markets. Now, uh, 21 and 23, both were obviously markets where they were growing quite, the market was giving quite good returns. So MSCI world up 15 to 20%. And in those markets, we, we outperformed. We stayed in touch with the benchmark as well in 2022, mm-hmm. and that's despite a 3% headwind from not owning energy stocks. Right. So if anything, we we thought that was perhaps the better accomplishment because it, it was a market where it didn't naturally suit our style, um, but having companies which have a strong free cash flow today yeah. and have uh, very high uh, returns at this present moment in time gave them a level of resilience that enabled them to perform even in a difficult market.
1: Yeah. Um and one kind of curious point on performance. Um, yeah, you mentioned you know, even though global equity has, has has beaten the the market since launch, I believe, it's also outperformed the global income fund since it was launched. That struck me as, as kind of curious, given you'd you think, you know, income stocks, they often have more of a value bias, energy you don't invest in, but but, but you mentioned. Um Explain that to me. Why has the Global Equity Fund been able to outperform the Global Income strategy? So
2: the Global Equity Fund has outperformed in 2021 and 2023 Mm -hmm. with rising markets. The Global Income Fund actually outperformed in 2022, where we had obviously sharply falling markets. Mm -hmm. And that's really the profile that we'd expect. So the Income Fund obviously has a greater amount of cash flow today. It's more anchored by the dividend yields. They tend to be more mature businesses. So, in more volatile markets, particularly uh, falling markets, we would expect EGI, uh, the global income fund, to outperform.
1: Okay, um, you know, and comparing the two a bit more, I mean, so Alphabet, uh, okay, Google, is the, the second biggest holding in the global equity fund behind Mastercard. It's absent the income portfolio. You know, it doesn't pay a dividend, so, so I get it. But kind of in a nutshell, why is it such a good investment? You know, what, why, what, how does that exemplify your
0: approach? Yeah,
2: I mean. Well, so, again, it's talk about the greater range of stocks that we have to pick from for the Global Equity Fund. Now, Alphabet is, is unique. Google is unique in terms of uh, the ability to provide search results. Um, it's a typical network effect business where the quality of the search results that a, a company can serve increases as more searches are done on the platform. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very, very hard to see someone displace it. And it actually, if you think back to the beginning of last year, when we had Satya and Nadella come out and say that they were going to disrupt search uh, with uh, generative AI, mm-hmm. despite all of Microsoft's advantages in generative AI with the open AI relationship, yeah. they haven't really been able to take share. And in mm-hmm. fact, when we've had the results recently, um, Alphabet search was up 13% and Bing was only up 7 So okay. Why is that, do you think? I, I think because it is just so difficult to displace a network. Of and again, it's, it's one of the sort of key competitive advantages that we look for is, is that because it is so hard to displace.
1: Okay. Um, and, you know, so on, um, it's on the 29 times historic PE, not one for value investors, you know, you, you mentioned the strong network effect. But, but why, you know, in layman's terms, why is it worth paying a 50% premium to global markets for a stock like that?
2: Well, I mean, again, a spot metric is telling you a lot about profitability in the past. Mm. Um, And what we're really looking for is, okay, what's Alphabet's ability to earn into the future? Mm. And if you look at the amount of capex that they're putting into areas like the data center development, that is money that you're sacrificing today from the profit line that will enable them to serve their clients into the future and generate, we believe, even faster growth. Yeah. So...
1: I I hear what you're
2: saying on PE, Mm -hmm. but but that's not really the method that we use to value this company. We want to see what are the the stream of future cash flows that it can generate.
1: Yeah. They used to have a whole division called Other Bets. Yes. Well, they just renamed it. Is that still there? They they've
2: renamed it, which is very sensible. Because Other Bets didn't sound too secure. What's it called now? Um,
1: I can't tell you off the top of my head. Fair enough. Um, Okay. I suppose, yeah, you know, on on the global equity, you know, what have you been doing recently? Whether on the global equity fund, the global income fund, you know, what have been some of the major buys and sales of last year and why?
2: Yeah, so I mentioned Airbnb, so mm. we won't know to cover that one again. Uh, we also, the so same, that, that that was a buy. That has been a buy this month.
1: Oh, wow. So just okay.
2: very recently. Um, we also initiated a new position in a company called Informa. Mm. Um, Run global events, and they're a position, the company that's been in both the UK income and the global income universes and portfolios. Um, We really like the positioning of Informa uh, going into the next couple of years. As we came out of the pandemic, um, people hadn't been able to attend global events for a significant period of time. Now, I think people are increasingly realizing how important they are to do business, particularly. If you're going to visit uh, some of your customers, they might only be in the office Monday, Tuesday, perhaps Wednesday. So you're getting far less bang for your buck in terms of going out and seeing clients and having a roving sales team. Mm. So the value of the conferences is increasing. Okay, interesting. And that is something that we believe will translate into improved pricing for Informer over time. So it should lead to sort of a steady mid-single digit, perhaps slightly higher growth rate over time.
1: Mm. okay. Um, and and what about some stuff on the sales side?
2: Yeah, so we've we've ju- at the same time we just what well, hasn't sold. worked, I guess. <laughs> oh, uh, I'd say whether it worked or not, we'll uh, see. But so we we've, we've just sold a position in Unilever. It was only a very small position in the fund. Now, okay, we we do like Unilever. think there's a lot of very strong brands there. Yeah, is that um, is that
1: a cross cross your fund? Sorry, that's
2: that's still a, a large position in both the UK income and the global income fund. But mm. we sold it from the global equity fund. Mm. Now. As I said, we have much more in the way of choice for the Global Equity Fund. We can afford to look at consumer branded goods, companies which pay a lower yield today. yeah. Um, and that really leads us to look for categories which have a slightly higher rate of growth and more reinvestment. Now, we very much like what we're hearing from the new Unilever management team. Mm. Um, if they do manage to put the investment that they've said they, they want to put in, uh, I'm sure the stock will perform extremely well. Hence why it's still in the income funds. Um, but as com- as a manager that's looking for capital appreciation, we really think there are other opportunities for us.
1: Okay, interesting. Um, I remember you, you saying before, you know basically you're you're buy and hold investors, right? Or, or you want yep. to be. But I remember you saying before you're, you're quite active in rebalancing. You even have a sort of weekly nudge. Yes. Process. Yep. I mean, h- how how does that work?
2: Yeah, so I mean. As I said, we we look for companies that can compound cash over time. Mm. Now, compounding absolutely only works if you give the business time for that compounding to take effect. Yeah. So ideally, we put money into the company, we let the company churn away the results, and that just drives the share price upwards. Now, sometimes the market moves around. Sometimes you have a better opportunity to redeploy that capital in another business with equally attractive compounding. Mm. So we very much are valuation aware. And we will make those changes if there's a significant valuation differential. Hmm. What we're not trying to do with our valuation method is be overly precise about the valuation. We're really just trying to say where in the market is there the best value and where is it the worst value.
1: Okay, so and it's just, a little bit of a gut thing.
2: Um, it's, it's a bit more scientific bit more than, scientific than, that. than but that, but it's really about not trying to be cute about valuation. It's about mm. trying to avoid making
1: mistakes. Okay. And so how, how often you actually, are you indeed tweaking weekly or is yes. it a bit you are? Okay. So we
2: have a weekly meeting. Now, mm. some, some weeks we'll meet up and we'll say, okay, we don't feel we need to do anything. Yeah, And that, again, is the ideal. However, what we want to do is say, okay, well, particularly if we have flows into the fund, is mm. there any company that we look at and think this business is now on an exceptional valuation and doesn't face a huge amount of business risk? And if so, then we might push a bit more money into that. Yeah, we, as part of the risk framework that I mentioned earlier, we will set a maximum position based on the risks that every company faces for every company within our portfolio. Um, so our risk metrics are built into our position size. Okay. So that very much comes into effect when we're thinking about sh- how should we nudge the portfolio over time.
1: Gotcha. And th- there will be times, I guess, where you, even if you think a company's got a great growth runway, great compounder, you just think this is too expensive now. Are, are there those times?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, we, there's there's plenty of examples where we've looked at them. So, for instance, uh, we sold our position in Adobe last mm-hmm. year. Um, we thought it was a very good company. But um, with the Figma acquisition coming up, uh, we felt a little uncomfortable about the long term uh, growth runway relative to the share price. So, yeah. Again, we felt there were better places to reinvest. Similarly, Synopsys, which is a, a provider of EDA so, software for helping you design chips. Okay. Fantastic business. Um, but it's a question of,
1: okay, well, how much are we willing to invest in that when we have other opportunities available? Gotcha. Okay. Um, I, I wonder, more of a general question here. I mean, so, you know, start this year, what have been a couple of the biggest debates in the office?
2: Yeah. I'm so, it's interesting. We, we really try and encourage diverse opinions and debates, but we don't want to have it sort of explode over one opinion uh, in the meeting. So, we really try and get people to ask questions. We have mm. an investment team of 18 that everybody will sit in our weekly investment meeting and, and ask questions. And How long is the meeting? So it's about an hour and a half. Okay. So, um, so we have that. We also have um, twice a year, we'll do a bull and bear meeting for every, each fund. So we'll present both a bull case and a bear case for every single stock.
0: Mm. So again,
2: that can throw out some really interesting discussions uh, and leads us to change the maximum positions and our risk weightings for each, each stock. Beyond the sort of uh, standard uh, state-of-play um, discussions, yeah. we, we are very much aware of what's going on in the global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had sort of discussions on what's going on, particularly in China and in relation to uh, Taiwan uh, and how much exposure the funds should have into, to those areas. What we seek to do is not take a sort of macro bet. We don't want to say we think this is what's going to happen, therefore positioning the portfolio accordingly. Yeah. We're really saying, okay, well, given what might happen, have we positioned the portfolio to insulate it against a number of risks. I see. Okay. So, uh, I mean, it's not a binary thing, a binary thing and you, you don't know which particular macroeconomics, you don't know which risk is going to be the most important one to, yeah. to cover. So we, we
1: really just want to be aware of what could happen and, and position the portfolio accordingly. Okay. Well, thanks, Chris. I'll, I'll stop grilling you about investing now. I, last thing I wanted to ask really was, you know, what, what else do you like to do with your time other than programming? Yeah. In your spare time, I
2: mean. Well, yes, yeah, so I've, I've got two kids. Okay. So they take up a significant period of, uh, of my life, uh, a lot of time. Um, I'm also a keen cricketer. So I play for really? the local uh, cricket team.
1: Okay.
2: And uh, that's, that's always uh, quite fun on a, a nice summer's evening. In yeah. The summer.
1: uh, batter, bowler?
2: Uh, very much a bowler. <laughs> Number 11. Don't, don't put me into batter if you don't have to.
1: Okay, you're quite tall actually, so I can imagine you being a a pace bowler or a spinner.
2: Uh, Pace, pace. Okay, great. Bit bit of sweet seam.
1: And and, uh, I suppose the very last thing then: Are you um, are you following uh, England in India?
2: Yeah, I mean that's absolutely fantastic. Tests last weekend. Uh, Yeah, they they did exceptionally well to come back from what looked almost a hopeless position. Um, Yeah, and yeah, it's. Lots of signs of life from the spinning, uh, from the spinners.
1: Okay. Well, I'll refrain from any basketball metaphors with investor or anything (laughs) like that. Anyway, thanks very much for coming in. Uh, Yeah, and great to hear more about your approach. Brilliant. Thank you.
0: The Scottish Mortgage Podcast, Invest in Progress, is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Joby, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.